BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore is brought to you by our generous listener supporters on Patreon and PayPal. If you appreciate what we do and would like to join them, go to dollamore.com slash PayPal or dollamore.com slash Patreon. The following broadcast may contain free thinking and open-minded discussion, ideas, skepticism, and adult subject matter. Topics will be discussed using adult language, sometimes gratuitously. Get ready to move the conversation forward. This ain't your granddad's news and comment show. This is I Doubt It with Dollamore. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining this very special bonus episode of I Doubt It with Dollamore. I am your host, as always, Jesse Dollamore. Sitting next to me, all bonusy, my lovely co-host, Brittany Page. I'm excited. I am very excited. Mm-hmm. We have been talking about, obviously, we've been talking about the Trump era and uh, the, the 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 parallels between the Richard Nixon administration and his eventual downfall. And that of Donald Trump. Yeah, and we have mentioned that there are some, but we haven't really gotten into what they are, um, aside from talking about the Slow Burn podcast. (laughs) And (laughs) so... We've talked about other people talking about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, And we had a listener reach out to us. Yes. uh, John. John from Ohio. And he said that his dad... Um, knows John Dean. They are touring the country talking about this very thing. And John Dean, of course, was former White House counsel for uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah, I almost al- said Donald Trump. <laughs> also, also a big deal. He's on CNN all the time now because people want to know what the... Again, they're asking the same exact questions we are. You right. know, all this means is we're not special. Oh. <laughs> and... Uh, we happen to have a listener because of the 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 tiny reach of our audience. Yeah. Who we know somebody who knows somebody kind of a thing. Yeah, I love it. And John Dean, it was a a big deal in Watergate. He was really the the first chink in the armor mm-hmm. when he said, "Hey, there's recordings." Mm-hmm. And that's ultimately mm-hmm. which is what led to Donald or to Richard See? Nixon. Yeah, it's easy. <laughs> Uh, to Richard Nixon resigning. Yeah. Or the ultimate resignation. Right. A couple years later. Yeah. So John said, hey, uh, have my dad on. And so we did. So we said, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Jim Robinalt is his name. Robinalt. And he is, like you said, traveling the country with John Dean doing a continuing legal education class on Watergate and ethics. And so if you want to find out more about him um, after you listen to us talk to him. Let me guess. Show notes? Show notes. Show notes. Um, Also, WatergateCLE.com. Yes. You can learn more about the class. So we talked to him. And there... There may be um, like a difference in audio that you notice on this one. Sorry about that. Um, Because we had to switch from what we normally do to a new method. Um, A new method. Yeah. But it'll be okay. It's not terrible. Don't worry. Yeah. So we'll just, we'll, let's, let's get to the interview 
And uh, we hope you have as good a time and it's as informational for you as it was for us because it really was. Um, I'm very happy. Yeah. B- beautiful conversation. Yes. And uh, illuminating in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned some things. So that's uh, me too. That's always, sure. <laughs> always a good thing when I come out of something smarter than before. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, joining us via the miracle of uh, what was going to be Skype, but because I couldn't get things figured out, Zoom, mm-hmm. a little commercial for Zoom, Yeah, Jim Robinault, uh, Renaissance legal mind, touring the country with uh, John Dean from the Nixon administration. Jim, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm great, and I'm glad to be on your show. My son is a huge fan. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> our our reach so he's he's the one who listens huh that's uh yeah he lives in columbus ohio and he uh he's told me about your podcast and just loves it thinks it's great well we that's that awesome wonderful yeah um we have been kind of it's been a, a top obviously it's been a topic of conversation when you have a political podcast the trump administration and what's happening right now but we've been of recent Kind of asking the question, God, we really wish we had someone who could talk with some authority about some of the parallels between the Nixon administration and now. Mm-hmm. And you are just that man. And we're just super excited to have you here. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, well, I'm a lawyer in Cleveland, Ohio, but I started writing books uh, about 15 years ago, mainly about the presidency. And John Dean and I hooked up in uh, 2010 to put together what we call the Watergate CLE. And we go around the country speaking to lawyers about Watergate and ethics. And in that program, we play the tapes uh, that you know John is involved in with Nixon, including the iconic uh, meeting in March 21, 1973, the cancer on the presidency uh, talk that John has with him. John's all of 34 years old. So it's a great moment for uh, lawyers who live through it, but also younger lawyers to listen to somebody try to talk to their CEO about a really bad problem that they have and how to deal with it. We've ended up, this program became so successful, we've probably done about 130 programs around the country and uh, we get calls all the time. So, and CLE is uh, continuing legal education, is that correct? Right, lawyers like... A lot of professionals need to get a certain amount of professional training every few years. And in fact, the reason lawyers do continuing legal education goes back to Watergate and John Dean's testimony before the Senate, where he said, I don't know how in God's name so many lawyers got on the wrong side of the law in this one. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that led literally to the movement to create the rules that we now live under as lawyers. Yeah, it, it is interesting to me. My, my business partner is a lawyer. And uh, oftentimes we'll talk to Drew is his name and we'll, we'll we'll be talking about things and he will express like shock that a lawyer would act with impropriety. And uh, <laughs> I guess I, maybe the rest of the world doesn't feel that way about it. But, but yeah, he, he certainly, no, it's t- you know, ethics for a lawyer is very is tough because, um, you know, we we're involved with people who sometimes have been involved in wrongdoing, sometimes not. But the. You want to perform in a way that that serves your client zealously, as they say, but you also can, like John Dean, find yourself on the other side of the line. And it happens very imperceptibly. Um, You know, his first book right out of Watergate was called Blind Ambition. And really, your ambition kind of blinds you sometimes to these lines that are fuzzy to begin with. And all of a sudden you wake up and you're paying people hush money to keep them quiet so they don't take down a president. Well, I certainly think we're seeing that now. Uh, I'm a former conservative, former Republican, and you know, I still I still hold some, uh, you know, romanticism about the party. And it is odd to me, shocking, in fact, that you've got these types who are loyal Republicans, lifelong Republicans, who are willing to sell out because I believe of political ambition and power in, in Washington, sell out those party ideologies um, for loyalty to, tr- to Donald Trump. Um, yeah, it's, it is a very slippery slope for people that 
Um, you know, J John's example is, is the best in American history. You know, he's a young guy. He becomes counsel to the president at 31 years of age. He's had about five years of legal practice. He's extremely smart. He, his memory is um, photographic. And, and all of a sudden, a president is asking you for advice and you're in the Oval Office and the, the allure of the, of the power in the office is tremendous. And, it, you know, he is the only guy in the room at the end of the day who stands up and says, we are obstructing justice with what we're doing. I've got to go to jail. All these other guys have to go to jail. And Mr. President, we have to stop it. And Nixon doesn't stop it. And that's when John then goes to prosecutors and, and, uh, and turns on him. Well, there, there are several parallels. Um, one of the things I'd, I'd love to hear you talk about is, you know, um, right now there, there isn't a, a uh, the, the preponderance of the American people aren't necessarily um, ready for this investigation to go forward. And that kind of parallels what was going on uh, during the Nixon years that, you know, the American people weren't as engaged about it. Yeah, it wasn't until like the Senate Watergate hearings in May of 1973, like a year after the break in when finally his um, approval rating was like below 50 percent. And right now, Donald Trump still has. Um, a relatively high approval rating for everything that's going on. So I'm wondering what needs to happen um, for Donald Trump to see uh, some of his support go away. Yeah, well, there really are two things at, at, uh, at work here. Number one, with any scandal like this, as uh, one of Nixon's aides said, it's the drip, drip, drip over time that erodes the credibility to the point that finally people can come to grips with the fact that they could see a president resign. Let me just give you just the, the briefest of chronologies for Watergate. Watergate happens in June of 72, the break-in. And everybody knows that it's the committee to reelect the president who's behind this. There's no real secret about it. Nobody really cares. Nixon gets reelected by one of the largest landslides in American history. And it's mainly because that election in 72 is about the Vietnam War. And Nixon said, I'm going to end it with honor. And McGovern said, I'm going to just get us out of there. And people just couldn't deal with that, uh, the, the American loss. So <clears throat> Nixon wins by a huge amount. The problem is that the scandal had baked into his administration uh, people who were about to go to trial in January 73. And that's what my book, January 73, is in part about, that trial. And they, you know, a wide group of people knew that they had been involved and that hush money was being paid to people and pardons were being offered to people. And when John Dean goes to speak to Nixon in March of, of 73, he says, look, the logic here is it's just not going to stop and it's going to keep going and we're never going to get out of it. You've got to just um, cut us, cut us off and let us go off and, and take the blame for this and continue the presidency. But Nixon doesn't do that. And instead, the Watergate committee comes about um, and uh, you have these series of people who are witnesses. One of the main ones is John Dean, who turns on his client, so to speak, and breaks with the White House and testifies for a week. Uh, John Lennon and Yoko Ono came to see him testify, by the way. It was an incredible, incredible event. And but he's not believed. It's this, this guy's young, this young guy's word against the president of the United States. And the only thing that changes the equation is when they find out that Nixon had taped all his conversations. That fight then takes an entire year, um, makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. And when the tapes are ordered to be turned over by the court in the summer of 74, two weeks later, Nixon resigns because it's clear he was involved in the cover up. So it takes time. You really have to erode that credibility. And there are certain people who are authoritarian personalities, not just authoritarian leaders, but the people who follow them, who will continue to follow authoritarian figures to the bitter end. And I think we got some of that going on with uh, Trump at this point. You know, that's a, that's an, a, an unbelievable point. It, it is, it sh I'm a former U.S. Marine, and I'm, I'm shocked at the complicity with which men who I used to have a lot of respect for, like uh, John Kelly, are are exhibiting exactly the characteristics that you just talked about. Uh, yeah. Following author just blind leadership 
um, besmirching his own character to defend and stand in the gap for Donald Trump. It's just well, goddamn bananas. Well, it's true what Donald Trump said, that he could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and he wouldn't lose any voters. There, There is some truth to that in, in these polls where they're asked if there's anything that they could think of that Trump could do or fail to do in his term as president that would make them disapprove of the job he's doing. And 60 percent of Trump supporters say no. I, I mean, that that kind of the, the cult of Trump is very concerning. Yeah, well, it, it is. Let me tell you this. It's human nature, number one. And number two, one of John Dean's best books is called Conservatives Without Conscience. And he got together with Barry Goldwater, who he knew as from the time he was in uh, prep school with Barry's son, Barry Jr., who became a congressman. Those two were good friends. They on the same swim team together. And so Senator Barry Goldwater was behind the scenes in Watergate helping John Dean navigate his way through the whole thing. But years later, when Senator Goldwater, who started the conservative movement, really in a lot of ways, uh, was very upset about the religious rights influence on everything and wanted to figure it out. Um, And he had written a book called A Conservative with a Conscience or something like that in 64 when he ran for president. So he wanted to work with John on a book called Conservatives Without Conscience. Unfortunately, Senator Goldwater was sick, died, John then picked up the project himself and wrote the book. And he really studied authoritarian personalities that, you know, a lot of studies were done after the Second World War because of Hitler and Mussolini and so forth. Where do the where do these followers come from? And the statistic is very stubborn that there's about 30 percent of the American public are authoritarian followers. Hmm. And so it explains kind of why that number never goes much below the, the low 30s. Um, that's just it's it's human nature and it's baked in. We need like another Milgram experiment to get to the bottom of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, it's it's uh, you know, it's um, I'm on the opposite side of that. I'm from a liberal background and a, my great grandfather was in Franklin Roosevelt's administration. So I come from a very different uh, mindset to it. But I you know, you just I have a hard time talking with people these days. Uh, who are in the Trump camp, because it just is clear that there are some real emotional blocks to really dealing with the truth and with reality. Mm-hmm. Well, we we uh, we talked about it yesterday on the show and they, we we played this lady, this ding dong on Jim Baker's show talking about how Donald Trump is the chosen one mm-hmm. and that you and your children and their children will be a curse. You know, it, just all this bizarre will be cursed if they criticize donald trump yeah if you speak against literally what she said is if you speak against the chosen one it just on what planet are we living right now where donald trump (laughs) with all of his moral failings is being supported by like 76 percent of the evangelical population and that's just it never ceases to amaze me because I'm also not only former conservative and Republican, but former evangelical Christian. And uh, a lot of life changes. Oh, yeah. Jesse's been through. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's it's interesting because in, when I wrote my book, January 73, about that one month and in that month, we had the Watergate Burgos trial, the end of the Vietnam War for us. Um, Lyndon Johnson dies. Uh, Truman dies. Uh, in uh, Nixon's second inaugural, but most importantly, Roe v. Wade is decided uh, all in one month. So it's this critical turning point in American history. And and the point that I make at the end of the book is all of the chaos from the 60s, mainly the civil rights agitation and all the riots um, in the urban centers and the protests against the Vietnam War created a huge backlash and it was really the Nixon <clears throat> counter-revolution. Uh, people just said, I can't deal with this chaos. I need, I need stability. And that brought, that's what brought in Nixon. Nixon made a speech in Miami in 1968 where he said, uh, I'm the law and order candidate. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I alone can settle this. Yeah. And, and Trump used that speech. Paul Manafort told the press they used Nixon's speech when he uh, when he gave that speech here in Cleveland, by the way, yeah, uh, 50 years later, essentially. And the whole point is we've been living in the Nixon counter-revolution since he became president, and we are just cycling through it over and over again, and Trump is the latest iteration of it. 
you think maybe this will put it to bed for, uh, or at least put it to sleep for a while after this thing gets settled? Now, I don't know, because I think that uh, I think that what's going on is very dangerous, very destructive, and it's going to take uh, an awful lot for us to undo the damage that's being done right now. Well, if you were to, I'm assuming you have a crystal ball there in front of you. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what would you think would be, uh, how's this thing going to shake out? Is it going to be the, the conspiracy angle, the, the, the connections to the Russians? Is it going to be financial improprieties whether it be bank fraud or whether it be campaign finance um what is it just going to be simply we have to wait it through until the midterms and the democrats are in charge and then impeachment proceedings well what, what's your take well I, I think you've hit on something there um i do think that Mueller is very careful about what he's doing he's building his cases any good prosecutor would i think he's also trying to extend this through the the election in the hope that the house might turn. Um, and then I think it, it would be easier for him to issue a report that they could do something with. Uh, prior to that time, he could issue one of the most damning reports and God only knows what a Republican Congress would do with it. They might not do anything with it. Yeah. Um, so, but I do think that what's going on here is, is um, very, very much, very much parallels what happened with Nixon. There is, the law and order candidate becomes lawless mm. and um, takes on, uh, it does things that because they think they are above the laws, as Nixon said to Frost in the Frost-Nixon thing, when the president does it, then it's not illegal. It's just not true. And so I think that that part of it, what, what happened with the Russian collusion, I think is pretty plainly in our face right now that something went on there. It's just very plain. I could try the case right now with the facts I have and win in a jury, uh, you know, just the fact that it was collusion. But then there's also obstruction of justice to try and stop the investigation. And to me, that's plainly in our face too. Um, we're seeing, you know, the, the attempts to fire the, uh, the FBI or the firing of the FBI director, the, the attempts to go after the special prosecutor. This is Nixon all over again. I've got an article up on History News Network um, today about that. So it is just both those things, I think, are going to uh, create a storm that will either bring uh, Trump down or causes resignation or at best wounds him for the rest of his presidency and uh, he's voted out of office. I think one thing that's uh, most unfortunate about this is that Donald Trump has been very successful in demonizing the media. And I listened to Slate's Slow Burn podcast. I don't know if you did, Jim, or what your I thoughts did. are on it. Um, but uh, that seems to be another parallel with Nixon, where um, Nixon also demonized the media. And I think Donald Trump sees that as a, a tactic that he can use to continue to hold on to his base. Yeah, I did listen to Slow Burn and I loved it. I thought it was really well done. Um, and yeah, this this attack of the press is what um, what a lot of tyrants do. You know, um, they they attack the press because they don't like a free press reporting on them. Nixon did it in spades. The the thing I write about in my book is when Henry Kissinger comes back after Nixon's reelected in November of seventy two. Henry Kissinger comes back from Paris frustrated because the North Vietnamese now know that they can play it out a little bit more because although Nixon was one in a landslide, the Congress was totally democratic. And in fact, the Senate had become more democratic in that election. Joe Biden was elected, for example, for the first time in that election. So the North Vietnamese said, hey, we can slow walk this negotiation. Nixon was furious. He meets with Kissinger, and in that meeting in December, they make the decision, along with Alexander Haig, to bomb North, Viet, uh, North Vietnam, to uh, bomb Hanoi Population Center with, you know, these huge D-52 bombings to force them to come to the table. Uh, and in that same meeting, if there's no coincidence that uh, Nixon says to Henry Kissinger, now remember Henry, because he did not like the fact that Henry Kissinger was a uh, darling of the press. Uh, he said, remember, Henry, the press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. The press is the enemy. Professors are the enemy. The establishment is the enemy. Yeah. Uh, don't forget that. Write it on the chalkboard a hundred times. Here, he's talking to a Harvard professor. Right. Um, 
And, but that's exactly his mindset. It's the exact same thing that Trump does. Do, do you think that that's like a, like a stated, like, for instance, with Trump, do you think that he's witnessed Nixon and these other authoritarian types do that so he puts it into practice or do you think it's something that's just baked into their personality and it just comes naturally for them two things I I think it's um I don't think I I don't think he reads so I don't think he really knows history (laughs) very well Uh, and I'm serious about that I don't think he reads a damn thing well Jim Um, Jim he he has told us himself that he is he has all the best words. He has a very <laughs> he has a very good brain. So I'm going to have to discount but, what you say out of hand because Trump says. But let me. But it, the, the but in all of this is we know what the but is. It's Donald yeah, Trump. Yeah. <laughs> We've seen it in, in his golf. Yeah. In, in any event. Um, the the thing here is that he became a political age during Richard Nixon's presidency. I mean, he his political awareness. And so go back and look this up a month after he came down that golden uh, stairway to announce that he was going to run for the presidency. One month later, he's in Phoenix, Arizona, and he gives a speech in which he says the silent majority is back. And the silent majority is a reference to a Nixon speech um, about how uh, the silent majority was supporting the Vietnam War. And he coined that term. So. Clearly, clearly, um, Trump admires Nixon and he sees what Nixon did, which is, again, to speak to all these people who were frightened by the chaos, but who were, you know, silent, not out protesting on the campuses. He said he specifically said the silent majority is back, baby, and we're going to win this election. So he echoed back to Nixon. And I think it's because that's when he became a political age. Hmm. So. Given the disinterest with many Americans or, you know, heads in the sand, whatever it be, um, do you do you think that's going to change like it did with with the Nixon era? Do you think that um, something's going to drop there? Eventually, the the evidence is going to be too weighty. The, The problem that we face, I think, is that Mueller's doing such a professional job controlling leaks, controlling information and intelligence coming out of the investigation that you've got, it allows, uh, it creates an environment where all these Trump people can say, there's no evidence, there's zero evidence, even but though we don't know that yet. we don't know what the evidence is because Mueller's doing such a good job. Right. 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 You know, I think that um, I, I have this fundamental belief that uh, evil carries within it the, the seeds of its own destruction. Um, something that Martin Luther King used to say all the time. And I think that in this case, that stuff is going to eventually, you know, come up. And I think this raid on the lawyer's office recently um, is bound to bring out really damning information. And as we, as we said, there's a group of people who will not do anything about it, but I think Trump has a greater resistance against him already than Nixon did even. Um, so people have to get to the polls. People have to vote. Uh, they have to change the, the makeup of Congress or we really are going to be mired in this uh, for another, you know, for the rest of the term. Um, but unless that happens, unless people get out and vote and do something about it, all this marching in the streets is not going to mean very much. Um, and, you know, for example, I was a great admirer of the Women's March, but I thought, it would be interesting to have somebody go through that crowd and say, how many of you voted? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, and it's statistically a low percentage of them voted. So it's not just marching in the streets, it's voting. We have the power to change things, but it just is, uh, it, it, people have to really convert it into action and get to the polls. I think another interesting aspect of the Trump uh, presidency is the Twitter account, the tweeting. And <laughs> I often yeah. wonder what it would have been like if uh, Richard Nixon had a Twitter account and what he might have been tweeting. And is is Donald Trump's Twitter account going to play a role in his downfall, in your opinion? Yeah, I think so, because he can't he can't control himself. He really has juvenile Im- impulses and he just, you know. That sort of activity by a president of the United States over time, it just is not going to work. Um, Nixon would never have used a Twitter account like that um, in you know, going after people. He surely did in the tapes. I mean, behind the scenes, 
um, you know, I've listened to a lot of tapes and he was, he was every bit as much uh, petty and hated enemies and all that stuff, thin skinned, very much, you know, retribution against enemies. That was all in the privacy of his Oval Office, but he was smart enough never to really go out there in public and do that. And I don't think he would have used a Twitter account in the way that uh, Trump has used it as a weapon. He was also a lawyer, so I think had a had a, a, a more of a tight grasp on the law and what his uh, <laughs> the problems that might arise. Yeah, that's a very good point. He he went to Duke Law School. Yeah. Um, and he, he practiced law. He actually argued two cases in the Supreme Court. And unlike Trump, Nixon was a huge reader of history, especially presidential history. His two icons that he really worshipped were, number one, Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and number two, oddly enough, Woodrow Wilson, hmm. um, who, who both were progressives. And Nixon, in a lot of ways, had progressive policies. He started the EPA. Yeah. Um, there were there were things about him that were progressive, but he, unlike Trump, really knew his history and really knew presidential history um, and had a great reverence for it. And in fact, you know, when he resigned, he did the country a favor by uh, not prolonging the impeachment and everything else. So he did, in that sense, uh, do a good turn at, at the very end of his career. And at that closing speech that he gives right before he gets on the uh, helicopter and gives the B signs as he's as he's resigning. He makes reference to Teddy Roosevelt in his closing speech about you. You never know when you're in the highest mountain, the lowest valley. Um, it's really it's kind of one of his better speeches. But he really did have a reverence for the presidency. It, it is. It's one thing that really has shocked me, and I'm really learning now is just how many allowances there's really no regulation or restrictions on the president relative to ethics um yeah i'm i'm shocked yeah. by that was there was there any uh, was there any any move after nixon to t kind of curtail this happening again yeah well there was the whole war power stuff um coming out of you know things like the christmas bombing mm -hmm. so that was congress taking back its um prerogative on de declaring war. But having now done this, this work with John Dean, one of the things we spent some time talking about is Article 2, which is all of about a thousand words. Um, and of that, most of it is about how you elect a president. So there's only about 225 words that describe presidential powers. Mm -hmm. uh, Commander in chief is obviously the big one and the chief executive uh, is the other big one. But you put those together and Sky's the limit in terms of what those powers are. It's an independent branch of government. And, um, you know, it's been read very widely for most of our lives and even prior to that, um, including the defense of torture. Um, so it is it is a uh, it's a very unspecified uh, uh, group of powers, unenumerated powers. One of the differences between Article one and Article two is Article one for the legislature says they will have the powers enumerated herein. That is. These are the powers, no more. Right. The president does not have that. It just says, you know, he's going to be the chief executive. Um, and there's no, as enumerated herein, so that, that's been read widely to say that his powers are much broader than, uh, than the legislature's powers. So it is, it's an experiment uh, to see how it works out with each president. It, it seems to me, in my layman understanding of things, that it would it creates even more danger between when when you have the Congress abdicating their duties and their powers under Article One, um, and relinquishing them to the executive branch. For instance, yeah. the War Powers. Yeah, like, and the, with, there's all this discussion right now. Just that Syrian attack of. You know, the, the, the Congress has the right to declare war. And um, and then it's the chief executive as commander in chief who carries out that war. It's not, but it's it, the other way around is happening now. The chief executive is doing both, deciding when we're going to do war acts and in executing them. And so there's a lot of people in Congress uh, recently who talked about going back to this war powers authorization after 9-11 and updating that and making it more current. Um, but it's it's a staggering power that the president has. I'm uh, I, I'm often disheartened. I mean, I look, I, I think that the, the midterms, they keep stepping on it. It's going to be a bummer for them because come 20, oh, well, here we are. We are 2018, but come <laughs> the midterms, 
you know, knuckleheads like Devin Nunes, mm-hmm. he's facing, we're, we're just, you know, minutes away from his district here in Orange County, and he's facing a race right now that should have been safe. Our local congressman, who's also friend to Russia, Dana Rohrbacher, mm-hmm. he's facing, he's likely not going to be the congressman after this. And it's, I believe it is, it's largely in part to giving Donald Trump, giving the executive whatever he wants. So, yeah. You know, the, the problem that we face is in it, history shows that midterms always go against presidents. It just is the way it is. It's the way our democracy works. The problem that we have is the redistricting that has been done very aggressively by Republicans. Yeah. Gerrymandering um, is, is going to make it difficult. And I think I saw the stats on the Senate that, you know, of the seats that are up, um, two thirds of them are Democrats. So, um, you know, it is it's not like you have a lot of Republicans who are up that can be unseated. Um, so it's it's going to be an interesting play to see what happens and how rigorous the resistance is at this point. But it is uh, it, it's you know, it's going to take a lot of effort because of the gerrymandering. That's well, been done. if we do get to a point of impeachment, I worked on Capitol Hill during the impeachment of Bill Clinton. I actually um, I worked for the Senate. I was on the floor of the Senate during that trial. Um, wow. And if in my estimation, again, I'm just a dumb guy, but in my estimation, <laughs> if 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 it goes down where even if we still have a Republican majority in the Senate, but we flip the House, articles of impeachment can be drawn up and then the, it would move to the, the trial in the Senate. I do believe now, look, it's it's not like historically we've seen the, the, it, that it's uh, the more deliberative body, the Senate, but it is more deliberative than the House. I think right. that we, there's still a shot that those senators would do the right thing and uh, not just vote based on party line. Yeah, you would hope so. And if it gets to that point where there are articles of impeachment, it's going to get to that point only because there's some very strong damning evidence. And so you would hope that both the House would vote for impeachment and that the Senate would then in the trial uh, come forward. It, it all depends on what exactly the evidence is that, that comes out of Mueller's investigation. But, you know, there is a danger in impeachment in that um, it really leaves a lot of people who, are, who support Trump feeling like this is uh, illegitimate and, you know, um, it could set us even on a more difficult path. So, um, you know, I, I would prefer to see what happened with Nixon where Trump would resign as opposed to um, having to go through impeachment. That really is a very um, difficult process for a country to go through and to, to get over. Would you also, <clears throat> excuse me, would you also recommend that uh, he be pardoned, like just, uh, you know, a la Ford or, or you know, <laughs> for the health of the country? I Because I disagree. I don't think that. I think there needs to be consequences and the, a message needs to be sent, especially with as flagrant as the disrespect and the, the, the just, criminality has been yeah i think if the if the, i'll tell you this much if the evidence shows what well, what it seems to show at this point that there was this collaboration with russia to help undermine our election there should be full criminal responsibility for that that is that is uh going to the heart of our of our nation and by the way one of the reasons you can impeach a president is not just high crimes and misdemeanors but treason yeah and you know i don't think there's any greater crime than um, than throwing an election with the help of a foreign power. So I just, I would, I would not believe for one second that anybody under those circumstances should be pardoned. If it's just obstruction of justice, where truly there was n- nothing and he, he just fell into this obstructive uh, atmosphere, that's a little bit different question. But if it is collusion and there's solid proof about it, which I think there's a lot of proof right now of it, then I think under no circumstances should someone be pardoned for that. I think it's hard to envision Donald Trump resigning. I, I that seems like something that he just would not do. It you know the only thing that I would say is that if his children are in jeopardy, and I think they are, um, that might you know he might want to make a deal hmm. where where you know um, he gets out, and th- there you could have the use of a pardon 
to actually make a deal of some sort. Hmm. Um, and, you know, frankly, when when George Washington was president, they used the pardon to stop the Whiskey Rebellion. And that's one of the reasons they put the pardon power in there was to deal with situations like that, to try to work a deal out with, with people who are insurrectionists. So um, but I think the only circum I agree with you, Donald Trump is a is a to the end of the, uh, you know, going down with the ship type of guy, unless I think there's serious problems with his with his children. Are you of the opinion of of many that uh, that a, that a sitting president can't be indicted? Do you, do you yeah, think, the, well, you, you think it would have to go through impeachment proceedings and then and then on to to some you know, remove him from office and then indict him? Yeah, there there is actual there's a there's a thing called the Office of Legal Counsel, which is in the Department of Justice, and it is the like the law firm for the president. They, the president asked the Office of Legal Counsel every, all the way back to even Roosevelt's time for opinions about presidential powers, for example. And a lot of people, William Rehnquist was the head of it, Scalia was the head of it. A lot of the Supreme Court justices come out of that group. And that group has twice uh, issued an opinion that a sitting president cannot be indicted criminally while sitting. Hmm. Um, And that's the current state of the law within the Department of Justice. Um, There are other people who take the opposite opinion and think that a president can be indicted uh, and that while under indictment, the 25th Amendment can kick in and the vice president can assume the powers of the presidency. So you don't have this, you know, president who can't do anything. Um, I think the law is pretty well established that you can't indict a sitting president at this point. But I do think you can uh, indict them and they can be tried after they're out of office. It's, I, I, I mean, I would take you at, at your opinion on that, that <laughs> clearly you have no more about it than me. But it seems... It seems antithetical to to uh, blind justice that no one's above the law. Um, that when you have a president who is clearly doing bad shit, that they can just be free from worry of of, of uh, consequence. Yeah, and you know that may be what happens here. They may try to indict him if the if the evidence is sharp enough. This whole thing about whether a president can be indicted came about when uh, Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's vice president, yeah, was, IRS. <laughs> yeah, was being was being charged with taking bribes, still even while vice president from contractors from his Maryland days as governor. And he, you know, the, the, the request was, can a sitting vice president be indicted criminally? And the opinion says, yes, a vice president can, but no, the president can't. Because the president, unlike the other branches of government, is the only actor. And, you know, you wouldn't want to just disable a president through criminal proceedings. That was kind of the, the, the whole idea of it, that it's such a unique office as opposed to being in Congress or on the Supreme Court where there are multiple players. The president, it's a unitary presidency. And mm-hmm. that's why that's why the opinion comes from it. But it's not based on any particular hard uh, law or, or, you know, historical reason. Well, let's let's wrap with one final question. If you were to predict how this thing ends, <laughs> what would be your uh, if you're if you're laying laying odds, making bets in Vegas? What would uh, where would your money be? My my money would be that there is going to be a change in the House in 2018 that it will become Democratic. That Mueller's investigation will then come to a wrapping point that he will then. Uh, share that information with the House, that the House will bring articles of impeachment, that it probably will go all the way to uh, a trial in the Senate. And then my hope is that at that point, uh, Trump would resign. Hmm. Look at that. I think that's likely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, it's an exciting time. (laughs) Exciting time to be alive, everybody. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining us, Jim. Um, your time is valuable, and the brain power that you just brought to the table is appreciated very much. Well, thanks a lot, and I will tell John Dean about your podcast, too. That would be fantastic. Perfect. Yep. <laughs> All right, well, is there anything that you uh, you got going on you want to you wanna plug, you want to talk about? Uh, yeah, I've got a new book coming out uh, in about a month. It's it, you can look it up online. It's it's called Ballots and Bullets: Black Power Politics and Urban Guerrilla Warfare in 1968 Cleveland. 
And it is about a shootout between black nationalists here in Cleveland and white Cleveland policemen. Um, and it's, but it's also about Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and Cleveland had the first African-American mayor, a guy named Carl Stokes. So it's that whole question of what then led to the shootout where you have people deliberately trying to shoot police uh, and why 50 years later we have somebody in Dallas doing the same thing at a Black Lives Matter, uh, uh, you know, and then Trump becoming president. So it's this, this, this whole question of what has happened in the last 50 years where uh, civil rights and the black freedom movement has stalled in so many respects, Mm -hmm. what happened? Why did it get there? And what was this shootout about? And so that book's going to be out in about a month. That is, that sounds great. We're going to, we're going to get that for sure. Yeah. Um, I'm, we have this conversation about race and race relations and um, justice on the show all the time. And I'm, I often say that between uh, Martin or Malcolm, I'm a Malcolm figure. I'm a Malcolm character, not figure. I certainly don't carry that kind of weight. It's so shocking. <laughs> yeah. I'm a well, little, the, I'm a little aggressive. The book is actually named after Malcolm X's, probably his greatest speech called The Ballad or the Bullet. And he first delivered that speech here in Cleveland in April of 1964. Um, and it was, he was the opposite of Martin Luther King. He did not believe in nonviolence. Yeah. Believe it. He didn't believe in violence. He believed in armed self-defense. And um, so, but it's interesting because he and King both came to the same church within a year of each other here in Cleveland and made speeches. Uh, King came here at the end of the, right at the height of the Birmingham campaign after writing his letter from Birmingham jail. And then Malcolm X comes a year later when he's breaking with the Nation of Islam and Elijah Muhammad, and he's moving. And at the end of their lives, the two of them move towards each other. Yeah, absolutely. And Malcolm X becomes more traditionally Islamic um, and takes the, you know, the, the civil rights movement to what he characterizes as a human rights movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very interesting to see their course. And the, the tragedy for America is that both of them were killed when they were 39 years old. Yeah. And think about that, both the impact that both of them had. And it was wiped out just as, you know, Bobby Kennedy was wiped out in 68. Um, And that, I think, was just uh, took a terrible toll for our country. And we've never recovered from it. We don't care about poor people anymore. I mean, it's just there's there's a huge impact from from that year, 1968, and what what happened in this violence is part of it. Mm -hmm. Well, that is awesome that we we recommend that book to everybody. We'll put that in the show notes and uh, we will put it in our little tickler file to uh to, to bring up again once it gets released mm-hmm. um thank yep. you again for coming on we uh we appreciate you and uh we wish you well uh happy to do so and i know my son john will be very happy about this. all right <laughs> <laughs> have a great day okay. thank you all right bye-bye bye-bye so like we said at the beginning i'm so happy that we finally got into this because yeah, yeah. we have been talking about the parallels between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon, and we haven't really gotten into the details of that. And yeah. I and Jim is obviously super intelligent and um, knows a lot about this issue. And I think it was really good to hear directly from him and someone who works closely with John Dean, who worked closely with Richard Nixon to kind of get the inside scoop here. Well, I like the fact that it's one thing talking to a lawyer. I talk to a lawyer all the goddamn time. (laughs) But talking to a lawyer who has also the presidential historian kind of angle on this is a big deal. Mm -hmm. You know, wanting to know about, do you think that we should? Like, it doesn't really sound to me um, like he's a a giant proponent of curtailing some presidential powers. Um, It's just really, we need to really look forward to to reinforcing that our government worked the way that our founders intended. Mm-hmm. For instance, Congress needs to get their shit together and take back the power that is theirs yeah. and start considering that they're th- themselves as a co-equal branch of government. Mm-hmm. It's easier for me to get fired up when we don't have the guest on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see that. But I think he um, made a good prediction as well. Yeah, and it's sure. it's good to hear that prediction from someone who, again, is connected to John Dean and has this kind of insider perspective on things. Um, it 
it's going to be fascinating going forward. <laughs> I remember when we started the podcast, people would say, what are you guys going to talk about? Like, <laughs> Two times a week? Yeah. What? What, do, what will you have to like say? <laughs> Not much, apparently. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> All right, everybody. We're going to leave you there. Listen, if you like what we do, if you love what we do, if you eh, kind of on the fence, but you think we're doing an okay job, we would love to have you support the show. You can do that via Patreon. Go to dollamore.com slash Patreon, and there you can do, which is like a, like a monthly Kickstarter campaign. Even $2 a month goes a long way toward helping support, helping produce the show, helping move the conversation forward, conversations just like this. You can also buy some stuff on Amazon. If you're already an Amazon shopper, go to dollamore.com slash Amazon. That'll just redirect you to the Amazon site with our little code in there. So we get a little uh, commission. You don't spend any more. We get a little bit. It's a win-win for everybody, including Jeff Bezos. Yeah. You know, you guys on hard times with his, well, hundred, don't say that. his $100 billion. Don't say that. Just emphasize us and the support that we get. No one cares about Jeff Bezos. You're you're gonna make them run away from using the Amazon link. What? So they're gonna go to Walmart and make the the Waltons billionaires? Um, I mean that's a fair point. You don't make them. You just continue their billionaire ship. Mm. <laughs> we don't have a choice. Uh, we're ruled by billionaires. Anyway, we love you. We will see you next time. Until then, for Brittany Page, I am Jesse Dollamore. This has been I Doubt. It.